Welcome to Taiwan on Air. Hello, everyone. This is Lara Mumesso, one of the hosts of this podcast series. And today we are here for the book chat. Today's guest is Dominique Menchuen Yang, author of the book The Great Exodus from China Trauma, Memory, and Identity in Modern Taiwan published by Cambridge University Press in 2020. Welcome to our book chat podcast, Dominique. Hello, you know, thanks for inviting me. Thank you, Dominique, for agreeing to be with us today. So let me first briefly introduce you to our audience. Dominique is a historian of modern China, Taiwan, Hong Kong, and Chinese migration at the University of Missouri. His research looks into the great exodus of 1949, when hundreds of thousands of people left China and fled to Taiwan, Hong Kong, and even beyond when the Chinese communists seized power. The book we are discussing today focuses on the memory of traumatic experiences of those who fled specifically to Taiwan. So let's give a little bit of background. It's 1949 and the Chiang Kai-shek regime collapsed. Chiang Kai-shek, together with his army, decided to retreat to Taiwan. And according to your estimation, the, the estimation you give on your book, this exodus involved about one million people between soldiers and civilians. Mm-hmm. So basing your investigation on archive material and interviews with elder mainlander Chinese, you bring the reader through a thought-provoking and compelling story, a story that has never been told before because, as you argue, mainlander Chinese traumatic memories of those events have been silenced, forgotten by other traumatic events, both in their lives and in the lives of Taiwanese people. And here we are talking about the returning home to China as well as the returning back to Taiwan during the democratization period. With this book, you tell a very different story from the one we are used to hear with regard to the Chinese civil war, which is so much focused on the reasons for communist success and nationalist failure. And you offer important points of discussion. First of all, cultural trauma is a constructed multi-event trajectory of repeated traumatization. So it is we shouldn't look at it as a single event. Mm-hmm. Second point, Mainlander Chinese identity is actually a Taiwan-based identity. So let's stop seeing Mainlander's identity as linked to China. And the last point is Chinese diaspora is a heterogeneous phenomenon, and this is proved by the unique situated experiences of Mainlander Chinese. So I'm not going into the details of your rich and engaging book, as this most probably will emerge as we will talk through in this chat, and I will start instead with a first question for you. Okay. So the process of writing a book is a journey, right? Often it can last for years and it can involve a series of events. Some are less expected than others, but together they eventually will contribute to the finished product of a book. Can you tell us a bit more about the process of writing this book and the important turning points that shaped its final outcome? Yeah, certainly. And thank you, Laura, for the question. Now, the book comes out of my PhD research, right? Um, so 
Well, obviously, it will take at least five, six years to do the initial research, and most of which was done in Taiwan. And because, you know, this was a PhD research, just to make the long story short, I started interviewing people. I started and also simultaneously uh, reading a large amount of um, historical materials, primary sources um, like newspapers, magazines, and basically just any kind of cultural products, uh, movies, films, novels that uh, were produced by, you know, first generation, I call them the first generation exiles uh, from, from China, the first generation mainlanders, and also later um, those produced by their children and grandchildren born in Taiwan. And of course, through this process, you know, I was able to also sort of work with and learn from local Taiwanese scholars who have basically looked at this um, this migration. And again, I mean, it's it's a pretty pretty long journey, and so many people have helped me along the way. There are actually two other books that sort of published it for me about ten years ago. Uh, also by historians, historians uh, Joshua Fan and Malone Myers, and I think they should be credit with the the first ones that really comes up with the story, right, in the English speaking world. And of course, um, you know, Stefan Korkouf, uh French political scientist, who really were, you know, Korkouf is really the first one in the member of Western academia to really look into the issue of contemporary mainlander identity. So I do have these people that sort of built that research, so I didn't really start from scratch. I think the, the turning book for the book is really that one year of postdoc fellowship that I got with um, University of Texas, Austin. Because, you know, before that year, uh, that one year when I really, you know, finished PhD, finished the research and have the story and have you know, and, and have that year just to basically maybe step away from the research I did a little bit and read a lot into the trauma theories. Um, the, the thing is that the theme that year for the, for that, I got a postdoc position, right? But for the Institute of, uh, Institute for Historical Studies at UT Austin, they have other fellows and these fellows are, they, they have their own uh, fellows at at the university, they are university professors in their history department. But they also have external fellows, uh, three of them actually, uh, and they're all professors already. And they help me tremendous. They're they're working in other areas like French history, Armenian history, and African American history. And of course, what brings us all of us together is the theme of trauma and in certain degree the theme of memory, traumatic memories, right? So uh, before I have that one year really to basically sit there and just think about um, how to turn my dissertation into a book and how to, and I really, really needed to sort of thank um, uh, Professor Madeline Xu for, uh, I mean, she's the one who really believed in this project and she, she's the one that, you know, my, 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 my sponsor and my, postdoc supervisor at uh, UT Austin history department just to bring me there and, and and because before all of this it was the focus of the book if we're going to talk about you know how to frame it right 
It was really only migration and Chinese diaspora. And of course, it was really later on that I really, you know, through reading and reading and reading more into the literature of trauma and memory that I realized that, you know, this is a better way to really frame the book, right? So, you know, it's, it's a long journey. It's, a, it's like any book. It's a pretty long journey, especially if it comes out of your PhD. You spend at least maybe nine years, eight years, ten years on it. But uh, at the end of the day, it is a pretty fulfilling journey uh, for me personally. And I certainly hope that I produce a book that other scholars can find, you know, insightful and helpful to their research. Thank you, Dominique. It's actually very interesting. You made the points about, indeed, book has been, first of all, of, of course, a personal project, but above all, a collective one. So we think of those who write books as staying in the room uh, in front of the computer for hours, but actually inspiration, exchange, chats with others are crucial to develop eventually idea, to connect uh, different uh, ideas and concepts. I would like uh, to ask uh, you in relation to this, because when I read your epilogue of the book, I found what I was waiting actually since the beginning of when I, I started reading your book. So, which is uh, above all your positionality, which the way I understood your book is indeed a turning point of uh, the way you eventually uh, developed your book. So let me ask mm -hmm. the question. So... Um, in the epilogue, you mentioned about the ethical concerns of writing about the pain of displaced people who have also displaced other people. So can you expand on this point also in relationship to uh, your positionality with regard to the subject matter? Yeah. Well, thank you, Laura. I think this is, you know, also a very sort of wonderful question to ask um, how the book was made and my sort of personal like relationship with it, especially, you know, with my family situation and my relationship with, you know, this particular subject or, or this particular group of, you know, I call them political exiles that I'm looking at, right? Um, of course, uh, as you said, I made a conscious choice to reveal uh, my family background or my positionality uh, at the very end of the book. And that is sort of a strategy, a writing strategy in which I hope, uh, you know, that I can produce a, a kind of an effect on people that they can really look at and think about the things that I said in the book about uh, writing and reproducing stories and memories of trauma. Right? Like, first of all, you know, I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm just going to come out and say it, like, because if, if the audience uh, have an understanding of uh, tai Taiwanese history or Chinese history or East Asian history in general, when they look at, I, on a book, I'm listed as Dominic Meng Shen Yang, right? If you, if you look at the spelling, you'll know that uh, my family is from Taiwan instead of, instead of China, uh, instead of the PRC. And they will often, you know, more often than not make the assumption that, you know, when, when, especially when you read through the preceding chapters before you get to the epilogue, they will see that, well, this might be a person. Well, this is surely a person that was born and raised in Taiwan. Uh, and 
he or she might be a person that a second or third generation mainlander. This is about his family history. And lo and behold, that's actually not the case because I, you know, I came from a native Taiwanese family and in my family, especially uh, immediate family in both uh, my paternal family and my maternal family, uh, there's very little connection or intermarriage with uh, mainlanders. And not only that, because both my paternal family and my maternal family, they were victims of the 228. So uh, they are extremely anti-KMT. Of course, I didn't really say it in, in, in detail, but I did say it in a book and how writing this book, it's a very fulfilling experience, but it's also a very painful experience personally for me to go through that, all those emotions about um, you know, about the, what you said at the very beginning, um, to study a group of people who, that you at the end of the day know that they were traumatized, they were displaced, and their lives and their children's lives were really influenced by this. But at the same time, their displacement was also a cause your family uh, of your family suffering and the displacement of uh, Taiwanese residents that were actually on the island uh, before uh, before World War II. And so this is in itself a very sort of complicated history. And, and for me to be a, a sort of a children and grandchildren of that generation who are sort of and those gener- my parents, my grandparents' generation who are actually not, not only displaced by the mainland culture and regime, but also were actual victims at the, my, my grandparents' generation at the, at the end of it. And for me to come up with a sympathetic sort of narrative of mainlander history. And, and I think, you know, this act of writing itself, um, it's, it's meaningful. It's in itself a way of reconciliation. I think there is at least one very important point, you know, you know, with regard to, to this question, I also want to get across to the audience here. Um, you know, I'm not, you know, selling myself as a person who can, you know, who has the authority to speak on any issues of trauma. I mean, I didn't suffer. Uh, my my grandparents and my parents suffer. I grew up in a really, really peaceful time, and I didn't really learn about all of this until I became, I, I really, you know, I returned to, like, I, my family immigrated to Canada when I was 13 years, 14 years old. Uh, I didn't really learn about all of this uh, history and Taiwanese history in general, but also my family history until I was a graduate student, of course, when I learned of that, I was disbelief and shock, and that has some sort of effect on me, right? And we do have a responsibility right about to write about these narratives and to talk as historians, as intellectuals, but the way in which we approach it, right? I mean, the goal would, should always be reconciliation. And uh, sometimes as um, receivers or inheritors of, 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 of these traumatic narratives. We write about people suffering without thinking about the consequences of writing about suffering, without thinking about how we should frame it, uh, without thinking about 
our own positionality and our own relationship to it. Right? I mean, that's sometimes where the problem is. And you, um, you know, there are there are different ways where things can go wrong. The one extreme is to just talk to talk about suffering and and just to use it against you know. Um, the you know, talk, talking about the evils of any authoritarian system and how this is the kind of hell on earth that it will produce and people turn on each other and just kill each other and there will be a lot of war and a lot of displacement. Then some people will say, so how's that wrong? That's the story you should tell. I say, yeah, you know, it's criticizing authoritarianism and, you know, abuse of human rights and, you know, all of that. That's, of course, quite that's that's not I'm not against that agenda. I'm against just revealing that story without going into the really the details of uh, of history. Like because this is a book about mainlander history, about the history of migration and displacement, and how and on one on one level is what that you know it, it historiographically you know it has a lot telling the story has a lot of meaning for taiwanese history and also has a lot of meaning for chinese history when it comes to you know how we understand chinese communist revolution and chinese civil war so that's one level but on the other level a deeper level it's a story of how you know people a group of people were exiles who lived to trauma themselves the trauma of not being able to go home the trauma of being displaced by war the trauma of family separation but at the same time because of the circumstances they became you know supportive of an authoritarian regime system in which you know you know they help suppress other migrants and also suppress the local Taiwanese and here I'm a descendant of people being suppressed locals and trying to basically tell the story right and I hope it's a right way. So again, it's very complicated. And I'm not trying to basically whitewash uh, the local residents. We call them the native Taiwanese. But as I said in the book, I don't like the word because the, the real natives were actually indigenous population uh, on the island and they were they were colonized uh, by, <laughs> by my predecessors. So again, it's Taiwanese history is extremely complicated. It's and there's a lot of traumas and displacements. And Thank you, Dominique, because I think you touched upon the main points without revealing too much. Indeed, this the epilogue is uh, the reason that actually when I was reading your book, that thing that was missing kept. I, I just wanted to go ahead in order to know about that. So yes, you did it well in answering my question. And I think uh, I want to follow up on this because you we are talking about reconciliation. The, the meaning that for different groups of people within Taiwan, this reconciliation meant. At some point in your book, you explain that uh, critical historiography has the potential to lead to compassion between victimized and victimizer, and therefore to a degree of reconciliation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And uh, you explain that this is your path to understand critically the experiences of mainlander Chinese in relation to those of Taiwanese. So I would like you to reflect a bit on a point. So you are a scholar, you are educated, uh, and you can do this exercise, right? What about common people, people who don't have the time and the resources to process certain information? So what kind of solutions or paths would you envision for reconciliation in such case? Because that's actually what eventually can be applied to Taiwanese society. This is a very hard question to answer because you are absolutely right. As you point out that, you know, um, I do think I, because I have 
this really detailing it in-depth understanding of mainlander history and how basically they reflect on different memories in their past to make themselves feel better right and if you look at that you will be you become pretty you know you become sympathetic you become like okay they're not really just saying these things because they want to really sort of wash themselves of the, their the, the association they have with the national stretching is that they are they were truly traumatized and they've been dealing with this uh, in their entire historical trajectory and no wonder why they can't feel sympathetic towards uh, the people that they sort of also displace because you know they were also traumatized I mean in, in simplest terms uh, if people can really I mean people on the opposite end of that spectrum can see that uh, and can can see that this is what I the, the story I'm telling has, you know, a certain degree of truth in it. They'll be able to have that, the, the empathy. And also for, you know, the same thing for the mainlanders and, the, and their children and grandchildren born in Taiwan to see that although they imagine themselves as uh, political victims of Chinese Civil War, Chinese Revolution, and also the KMT's politics and, and also maybe core politics become China and the United States and also victims of the Japanese um, imperialism. This is going back to uh, the resistance war. But in the end, you cannot justify the way in which your migration have basically just also displaced and victimized the local Taiwanese. And this is how Taiwanese people, like the, when I say Taiwanese people, I mean the pre- 1945 residents of, of Taiwan, uh, which is, which was also a pretty, uh, com- you know, sort of complicated, um, and diverse population, what they have to put up with. You know, you just, you just came here and people need to accept it and they need to learn a new language and adapt to a new political system, right? It's not like, and this is their home. So I guess the short answer to that is, you know, it's getting people to see the other side of this. Story and and I made that cross. Back to this this question of, of critical historiography, I think it's very you know in short it's very important to tell the stories of trauma. Like you know in in a case will be Mainlander experiencing 1949, the exile, the, the family separation, the war, seeing people getting blown to pieces and and how bad it is they couldn't get home and that's even more traumatic and then they they got home and, and found out the home was not home in the 80s that's that's even even more traumatic uh and also Taiwanese with the experience of 228 white terror and that's that's all fine but critical his critical uh historiography of of trauma of storytelling that I talked about in the book is really beyond that. It has two elements. You know, first element is it has to really sort of, you have to study other people's trauma, especially people who, who you perceive that are really wrong you and your community. <laughs> you see? And, and you have to really pay attention to like the transmission of, uh, intergeneration transmission of trauma and all of that stuff. Cause this thing will, will, will be generational if it doesn't get resolved. Right. I mean, that's one thing. And the other thing is the extent, you know, it's sort of the same thing as that. It's to not only look at the memory itself, but how 
different memories were sort of produced to serve different purpose. There are memory always has this instrumental, especially traumatic memory. There's always, you know, a purpose behind it. And when it becomes a collective cultural movement that you can sort of observe people are doing, it's not only one person writing his memoirs or producing stories of trauma during the civil war. It's like an entire society. People might be of different social status. This is what's interesting about identity, especially a mainlander identity, because when I start doing this, people, there will be people in Taiwan coming up to me. He or she is a person of mainlander descent, you know, just by blood or people who are just regular Taiwanese who have no connection to the mainland. They all tell me that there's no such thing as mainlander identity because mainlander is such a diverse community. And a lot of them, is not, not a lot, some of them are still saying that they're Chinese. But I said, no, there is, like, according to my, but there is something called mainlander identity. It is loosely grouped by a common reflection on the collective cultural trauma of 1949. But it's a community that's grouped together by this common memory of suffering, of that origin, right? Of course, it, this thing only started after Taiwan democratized because before that, People who came from China in, in 49, 50, uh, in late 40s and early 50s and, and their children were, who were really only born in the first 20 years and not really, are not really participating in memory politics. So it's the, for the first 20 years, really the, the, the first generation that was important because their, their people were active in producing memory about themselves to tell story of who they are. Uh, for these people, from at least I think 1949, when they when the exile started to 19 late 1980, the stories of 1949, that initial trauma was not was not really that important at all, <laughs> right? I think so. When you understand the dynamic of you know, and this is I don't know how I should call it the history of memory. I think that's, it's an appropriate term. So it's it's not only using memory as to using memory or oral history to to recover historical truths but one step further you, you see people like to put up like dichotomy that 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 doesn't exist because pe some people will read my book and say well so you're against oral history i said where did i <laughs> say that it, you know in you know can you point out a place in the book when i say oral history is not believable it's all constructed as fictional i never said that i said all these memories are true there are experience real experience real people that i lived through at a certain period of time right and they all become part of the memory repertoire of that community. Of course, not everyone experienced 1949 the same, but even for people who got to Taiwan with, you know, in comfort, later on, the, the condition of exile itself, it is still for them extremely traumatic. And for these mainlanders and their descendants, right, you know, for the first generation, they're alive and their descendants, they, I mean, people might have different political views. You know, they might even support different political parties. Like, not all mainlanders support the KMT. I mean, well, they're, they're more supportive of the KMT, but, uh, but, you know, not every one of them, but they will all have that collective identity that's based on the great exodus. And that identity was created after, after, after democratization. So, like, like I said, you know, you know, really back to the, the idea that you must, you know, when you, when you, when you try to understand the kind of sort of cross 
border cross-cultural critical historiography of trauma, of traumatic memory. It has to have all these elements for it to work. And based on that, we write historical narratives that are easier for general public to understand. We, we need to get historians to think like this. We're, we we can't get we we can't have just me thinking about this and for the rest of the you know ninety nine percent of other historians just going out and produce really traumatic stories of trauma. That 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 just means that you have a divided community for like generation. You have people that with mainlander family your connection to mainlander family always producing the trauma of 1949 and you have you know like people with my background always producing the trauma of traumatic stories of white terror and and 228 and then these two memorial communities will never meet as a you know there there were like two parallel lines that will just keep continue for uh, go for and they will never cross paths and I think this is bad for any society, right? You also answered another question I wanted to ask you. The difference you make between oral history as a form of social production of memory and oral history as history. So you already, I wanted to ask you indeed the, the difference between these two approaches and uh, the different outcomes or outputs that can come out. But I think you already uh, made the point while you were answering yeah. the other question. Mm-hmm. And I think that, uh, again, in your book, you explain very well, and I, I precisely agree with you. I don't think you are against oral history, but it is very inspiring to see how you look at it in a critical way. So I think it's worth reading for anyone who finds this chat uh, interesting. So I'll ask you another question instead. So what kind of uh, main points or misconceptions did you address it with this book? You know, I, I, I think there are many. <laughs> yes, indeed. <laughs> but if you really want me to pick and choose and just say, you know, you know a, a few major ones. Uh, and again, these are like different levels and different dimension addressing to different uh, scholarships uh, and or different historiographies, you know. I think the first one that's that's quite obvious, and I do mention this, I think, already in my previous answers just a little bit. And this is not only Taiwanese history or Taiwan studies. This has to do with Chinese history, the study of modern China, and how the entire East Asian scholarship looked at the revolution in 1949. People who escape China, you know, in 1949, they were basically all supportive of the nationalists. I mean, that's, you see, that's one of the misconceptions about the mainlanders community in which I try to dispel and in which I think, um, Korkuv and Joshua Fain and Malone Myers, my predecessor, have already disproved, um, to a certain degree. I think in this area, I just talked about it, you know, more very, very specifically with more it's not only with the oral history, but with social survey numbers and, and also with, uh, with a lot of evidence of this sort of, uh, the trauma generated by forced displacement and how, um, uh, a portion, I'll, I'll say a considerable portion of the, of the mainlander community. Like I said, if you look at people in the military, especially at a low ranking 
like the the foot soldiers were basically comprised of the most of the mainland population. They weren't really that in league with the nationalists. They basically joined the war, the civil war, because they had literally no other way for them to survive. And that, you know, they just happened to end up in Taiwan and they didn't like the nationalists that much. The nationalists didn't like them that much. <laughs> and so if you, if you look at those dynamics, right, and then listen to the stories that these people told about what actually happened during the civil war and how, you know, the national, of course, they're mainly talking about the nationalist size, right? I mean, that's the, that's the surprising thing. If, if the anti-communist education would work, they, they were mostly talking about the the brutality and and, and the, the massacres committed by the communist side. Of course, they talked about that as well, right? But most surprisingly, they talked about you know how they were basically captured by the nationalists and they you know and they were sort of used in a certain way. So I think there is a lot of truth in 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 those things, right? It's just that they can't they couldn't really talk about it before. Uh, Taiwan democratized and become a society where you can say things without impunity, right? And so I think this group of people, the exile of 1949, uh, they came from all corners of China. I mean, these oral history that's done in Taiwan uh, in the 1990s and to the 2000s, because now, you know, it's, it's very hard. If, I mean, these people are just, they're just withering and, and, and passing away, right? So now, if you want to find them right now, they're, they're in their 80s and 90s, and not many of them are left. But before they leave us, they provide us with these stories that are now recorded. And I think in the future, maybe when, when China democratized, or I don't know, uh, when they try to basically look into the past, and this will be a reservoir of knowledge that they can tap on, because like 99, maybe 99% of the population didn't leave China, uh, and they experience another historical trajectory, which was also filled with trauma, <laughs> right? But for them, for people who lived through the Chinese Civil War even earlier, they have already passed away, and we have no way of knowing how they truly felt about that time, right? And I would say that this particular collection, I mean, so so this is just basically helped change our view. If you, if you really see these stories and look at them, you'll be like, you know, 1949 was just, yeah, it was a, it was a, it was a very brutal civil war, and both sides used whatever mean they, they can to try to win that war. And the Chinese communists won, you know, for the most part, not because they got the support. Well, <laughs> the support of the people, the support of the peasant. What does that mean, right? What does that even mean? Uh, you know, in a time like that where people were just under like constant war and displacement and abuse by, you know, military forces of all kind, including Chinese armies on both sides, right? I think the, uh, the communist one, because it's a better, more rigid party system, it's more effective in mobilize in 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 terms of uh, you know its own party organization, army organization, and also in terms of mobilizing people for for the total war. And a lot of that mobilization, of course, it's a, it's incentive, it's propaganda, image, um, but also you know behind that was also a lot of coercion, right? 
And so it's, it's not, it's not really purely a revolution for social justice. And this is what I always thought. If it's a revolution for social justice, why is the result so bad? <laughs> right. <laughs> anyway, like, I don't want to get into those kind of things. You know, you, you know, it's just like, I, I think, yeah. So that's one. And the other things I, I, like, I helped dispel, I already talked about it's about the mainlander community, right? Um, they're, they're, they're extremely diverse. They're not all like high ranking nationalist generals or, or officials and, and like even within nationalist elites, there's this very strange dynamic between when they're in the mainland and their relationship with Chunkai, with, with Chunkai ships. Uh, the, 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 the inner circle that's actually under Chiang Kai-shek and his son, Chiang Qingguo. Because you have to understand when you're in China, the dynamic is very different. All these nationalist, um, leaders, some of them are their own lords, their own province, right? The, the central government had very little <laughs> power and sway over them. And it was allowed, right? But then when they're in Taiwan, you're you're now all exiles away from your population and bases, and now you have you have to listen to this central government that is in exile, and that was that that was in exile, and that and it was supported by the United States, right? So even that dynamic is is very very different, and and also what's the third one that oh about mainlander identity? I think that's the third one that I help uh, sort of dispel the myth about. Um, the, the mainlander identity being that, that the fact that it is an identity that is still fixated on returning to China and try to work for the unification between China and Taiwan. Now, that might be, uh, you know, still what a lot of the first generation thought about because, you know, they grew up in China. And although, you know, only about one or two percent of them <laughs> chose to live, go back and live in China when they were, when they're able to, uh, when they're, yeah. Um, but they still want some sort of, uh, but not for the second and third generation born in Taiwan because, and they're the ones that are producing these traumatic narratives of 1949 because this is where our parents our grandparents came from, and this is what united us as mainlanders in Taiwan, and I, and I stress in Taiwan because some of them will even say we're still Chinese, where, but it is a Chinese identity that's based locally in Taiwan. You are a different kind of Chinese compared to your relatives in the mainland, and also Chinese population in in Malaysia, in Singapore, in Hong Kong. You are different from them, and you are also different from the other Taiwanese that, that you used to rule over or the indigenous population in which everyone ever came to this, have ever come to this island have basically stepped over, right? But you are a group of people with this history that is very different, right? There's a lot of memory production that goes into this, like there's the Juan thing and there's the, the Lao, the story of Lao Bing. I mean, those are the two most popular ones, right? And so, but, the point is that this identity, when you look at it in detail and see how it, the, the way in which that it was produced and the circumstances that, that it is produced, you will say that, you know what, this is a Taiwan-based identity. These people or, or the, the descendants of, of the 1949 exile 
who now form a majority of the mainlander population in contemporary Taiwan, they want to become Taiwanese, a particular type of Taiwanese, where they're also part of this new imagined community after democratization, right? And of course, they will be advocating a more reconciliatory gesture towards China, to where they, they always want peace, because, uh, you know, <laughs> You know, being refugees or children of refugees, that memories is always with you, right? So they're extra sensitive to, to they they don't want to provoke mainland China. And also the other thing is the legacy of the, the Nationalist Party and the exile ROC on Taiwan. So they will see people who on the green camp who have this Taiwan center history as something that would exclude them. As colonizers and outsiders. So they're, they're against that extreme, but they're against that not because that they identify with a PRC or the identity of being citizens of the PRC. I think that has to be very clear. Like that it's, it's the point that I try to make in a book. Thank you, Dominique. And I hope that the richness of your answer for each point you mentioned, also the answer of the previous questions, um, like feed that curiosity of uh, the listeners, because again, uh, the way you speak reveals the depth of your book and the amount of information you're going to share with us when we when we read it. Mm-hmm. I have a last question for you. Yeah, sure. And it is uh, related to how you approach trauma. So you make the point in your book that uh, our understanding, actually within Western academia, the understanding of trauma needs to be decolonized. Mm -hmm. To decolonize something is uh, a very timely approach. So I would like to know, uh, first of all, what you mean, why we need to decolonize trauma in uh, Western academia, and also how you achieved it. How did you achieve your objective in your book or in your research? Okay, um, and again, very, very good question. First of all, the idea of decolonizing trauma comes from Michael Rosper and, and also to a certain degree, uh, uh, Steph Crafts. So, uh, and, and also, you know, literature scholars that are really affiliated with this movement, uh, led by people like, uh, Rosper and, and Crafts. So, um, I, like I tip my hat to them. Their work is inspirational and really comes from, again, this being uncomfortable with, because when we try to understand how, you know, because societies are very different, right? Um, you know, I'm not only talking about the East and the West, but even within the East and the West, there's so much diversity. Uh, even within the Sinophone speaking Chinese community, and there's so much, there's so much different, right? So human suffering is universal. We know that, you know, any society we've been through civil war, civil strife, or natural disaster where a huge amount of human life, um, lives were lost. And you will say, yeah, that's entire society has been through some kind of trauma. Like it, the people in a state of shock, right? Cause they didn't, they, they didn't anticipate that this will, this, this will come upon them. I'm, I'm not saying that people suffer differently. I'm saying like, you know, that, that part is universal. But how people deal with, you know, an event like that and an overwhelming 
event like that. It's, it's also very different, and also the type of thing that they perceive as traumatic. And this is why we need to sort of decolonize trauma because, like everything else, on um, the way we which we frame trauma or we understand trauma really comes from Western scholarship, and then especially like the psychoanalytical tradition coming out of like late 19th, early 20th century psychoanalysis or with Freud and his generation. There are also very important differences in how people perceive shock, right? And, and how people deal with it you know, within using the things that are actually in their own historical and cultural repertoire. And it is it, in the spirit of understanding that we need to basically decolonize trauma. Like, you know, like if all of this is extremely abstract, I can give you some example, right? For for example, on um, these the what I call the psychoanalytical tradition of Trauma theory is very, it's to a certain degree very individualistic. To restore that lost memory, that's very important for, you know, the traditional, I call them traditional trauma theory thought, right? But what will happen if you don't have a loss of memory, right? Does that mean that, you know, people who actively remember what happened? I mean, this thing happened to, like, you know, you, for example, like, Average mainland soldier went through this traumatic civil war and he was like kidnapped by nationalist armies and beaten and subject to all of this and taken away from home when this person was like 13 years old. I would say that that classifies as traumatic in, <laughs> in any culture, but, but he can remember the whole thing. He didn't lose his memory. And of course he's going to have nightmares and all that stuff, but he is, you know, if you ask him, he remember, he'll tell you. And does that mean that person is not traumatized? I mean, this is where, you know, some of the trauma theory can get very, very sort of ridiculous. Because uh, when I was conducting my research and try to look for, talk to people who do uh, trauma studies and, um, you know, especially all that comes out of the Holocaust and the study of Western experience. And I, I often find that memory is such a big thing. There has to be this sort of loss of memory. And then I realized this is about this sort of Western, sort of this emphasis on, on self, right? If you lose the ability to remember, to remember, or not lose the ability to remember everything, but certain things in your life, that will turn out to be something that's very, very wrong. Because then you lose your ability to become a person, a whole person, you know, in this sort of traditional Western trauma theory. It, it, it's very important to make you become a whole person again, to make you remember those things that your brain suppress. But what I'm trying to say is that there are other, you know, circumstances and other situations and other models that we can really look at and the the kind the mainlander stories that i looked at it's when you look like most of them remember and continue and the condition of exile continue to be a source of trauma for them and this has to do with by saying this i'm not trying to essentialize 
Chinese culture or Chinese society. It itself is very diverse. I'm just saying that people who live in mainland China during that particular period of time, uh, and I, I would say still to a certain degree right now, that the way in which you imagine yourself to, is to be able to belong to a particular group of people, like your relatives, your lineage, your ancestors, right? And to be buried with your ancestors. And this does not mean that you don't go, you, you have to stay put where you live, your native place, but it just means that when you go work in the cities or you, you, you're, you're in a foreign place, you have the ability to return always to that native place and pay respect to your ancestors, right? And when you're finally, when you die one day, your remains might be repatriated back to China, the, the village, and then to be buried with your ancestor or your parents. That's very important, right? But if a person that comes out of China at that time realized that he or she couldn't do that for the rest of his life, and he's basically alone in the place of exile and without any communication with home, that will do a lot of damage, like psychologically, to a person being brought up in that that culture, and that in itself is much more traumatic than seeing to for a lot of people than seeing people get, like getting blown to pieces. This is where you know being a historian comes in, right? You know, study the archival sources, study the primary sources, go interview people. And really, you know, get to know what and learn the language, know the culture and just put yourself in that place and just, yeah, because they understand things totally different. And, and in that context, memory loss itself is insignificant. Memory gain is significant. When I say memory gain, I mean, you know what? I just go back to a happier time in my life, <laughs> you know, to, I, I want to basically remember that part of my life. And that remembrance itself, the recall, the act of recalling, right? The act of memory itself is therapeutic. And so this is why I think that the, the value of decolonizing trauma is not only to perceive the group of people or the historical phenomenon that you're studying in a more precise way, in a way that's understood by the subject that you're studying without misreading them. You know, because if you come in with a pair of lenses that are, that are rooted in traditional trauma theory, when you want to look at trauma, you want to look at people who lost their memory. The people who are remember, ah, they're not traumatized. I don't look at them. And that's absurd. So again, I, I hope that answered the question. Thank you, Dominique. It was a pleasure for me to read your book and also to sit down and think about which questions I could ask in relation to it. So that was my last one. I would like to thank you very much for talking to us about such an engaging and stimulating work. Uh, let me repeat the title for our audience. Uh, so it's The Great Exodus from China, Trauma, Memory and Identity in Modern Taiwan. It was published in 2020 by Cambridge University Press. I hope that many of our listeners have been inspired by this book chat. They go to the library or they buy the book. This is the first of a series of book chat. I hope I'll see you next time. Bye. Bye-bye. Okay,